If you have a Bible, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians 3. Remember, if you have absolutely no idea where 1 Thessalonians is, it's not a sin to use the table of contents. Feel free to use that. We're going to be in the New Testament, so you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Keep going, and you'll get to 1 Thessalonians. What we've been doing for the past few weeks is we have been going just verse by verse by verse through 1 Thessalonians. We're going to move right into 2 Thessalonians as, as, as soon as we finish the first letter, and we're going to take this all the way to the Advent uh, season. And so from now until around Christmas time, we're going to look at First and Second Thessalonians. And so we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 3. So if you find the book, look for the big number 3. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. And then look for the little number 6. That's the verse number. Not everybody is familiar with how to find things in the Bible. And so would rather just teach you rather than assume that you know. And so First Thessalonians chapter, six, uh, chapter 3 starting in verse 6. As you're turning there, 50 years ago, actually, in 1972, a little book was published that has been a perennial bestseller ever since. And it chronicled a day in the life of a young schoolboy who wakes up with gum in his hair. There's no prize in his cereal box. His mom forgot to pack a dessert in his lunchbox. He has to go to, to the dentist after school, and guess what? They find a cavity. He goes to the shoe store, and the only color and pair of shoes that he wants is sold out. And his brothers get the ones they want, but the one that he wanted, they were out. So he had to get just plain old white ones. And you can imagine, as the bad news piles up throughout the day, he talks about just wanting to leave it all behind and move to Australia. Why? Because he's having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, which is that book. The name of the children's book by Judith Vorse. Maybe you've seen it before, the Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, written in 1972. When you think about Alexander, I think one of the reasons why that book has been a perennial favorite is that we've all had days like that. You ever had one of those days? Like Alexander, the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. One of those days when everything just seems to go wrong. Is any, am I the only one that's ever had one of those days like that? You're just like, throughout the day, you're like, can't anything go right? And you think about, you wake up, your car has a flat tire, which means you're late for a meeting, the kids fight all morning. The one thing, the literal one thing you needed from the store is sold out. You get a pop quiz in your class, and you just utterly bomb it. You were excited to go outside, and then it just rains all day. You wake up, and it's just going to be a rainy day. You get an unexpected diagnosis. You and your friend get in an altercation. I mean, fill in the blanks with those kind of days. It just seems like the bad news keeps piling up. And over the course of that day, you just feel more and more just kind of busted up and worn out. And you may have said something in the midst of your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. You may have said something like, I just want something to go right today. I just want some good news for a change. I mean, it seems like all I'm getting is just bad news after bad news. I just want some good news. And if you've ever had a day like that or a stretch of days, sometimes they, as you know, when it rains, it pours, and sometimes you get a, a stretch of those days. When you, if you've ever been in a day like that, then you know exactly how the Apostle Paul felt as he waited for Timothy to return. Paul had been run out of Thessalonica, and he was now in Athens, which is about 312 miles to the south. And from the very moment he had been torn away, remember we looked at that last week where he says, it feels like we've been orphaned from you, we've been ripped apart. From that moment when he was ripped away, he had been worried about this little church in Thessalonica. 
As you remember, this city was a massive, big port city in Macedonia. Big, as, as it's been called, the New York City of Macedonia. Big port city with a lot going on, 50 miles away from Mount Olympus, literally in the shadow of the, the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, in the, like in the shadow of pagan worship. And here was this little church with a bunch of young Christians in it. And you can imagine, Paul was just worried about them as he had been run out of town. He knew that persecution was coming. He knew that they were young in the faith. He knew that Satan was trying to rip that little church apart. And as he had said in the previous week, I have tried to get back to you, but it seems like every single time I've tried, Satan has hindered our attempts. just seems like every day is a no good, horrible, very bad day. I'm trying to get back to you, and I'm worried about you. Paul trusted God's sovereignty, but his human pastor heart couldn't help but wonder how they were doing. And so he did something actually very costly. He actually sent his, his ministry companion, the guy that was right there with him in the fight, in the midst of it, he sent Timothy to go check on this church. And it's 312 miles away. They didn't exactly have a helicopter back then. They didn't have a jet where it could be like a quick day trip. You know, this was, this was a trip that was done on foot as Timothy goes. and It took forever to go and forever to come back. And in the midst of that, <clears throat> Paul was faced with challenges of his own as he continued to preach the gospel on this missionary journey. And he had faced fierce opposition, not only from the pagan Greco-Roman leaders and philosophers, but also from these angry Jewish leaders who stirred up the crowd and opposed him at every turn. As you know, Paul used to be a Pharisee, and he was well-trained and had entrance into these Jewish synagogues, and he would go in and, and start preaching the gospel. And you can imagine the religious leaders who were there did not take too kindly to that. And so he was faced, by, faced with opposition on every turn. And you think about this in the life of Paul. Day after day, more opposition. Day after day, feeling like you're pushing a rock uphill. Day after day, while I'm alone, I'm waiting for Timothy to get back. Day after day, how is this little church that we love doing? I don't know. And it just feels like this, it keeps coming. And he, you can feel the anticipation with Paul growing. And all of a sudden, he looks up and he sees Timothy walking towards him. But he doesn't know whether it's going to be good news or bad news. But he sees Timothy, so I at least know Timothy made it. But what did Timothy have to say? What report did he bring? Is it going to be good news? Is it going to be bad news? Let's find out. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. We see what happened when Timothy got back. If you have a subtitle, you probably figured out it's good news. Mine says Timothy's encouraging report. So spoiler alert, that's where we're going, okay? Look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God from you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see, your face, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The grass withers, 
and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your word. And we are grateful, O Lord, that we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would please come here and help us, O Lord. We long to worship you in spirit and in truth. We need your help. And so, Lord, as we look to your word, soften our hearts, remind us of what is true and right. Encourage us, O Lord. Help us to make very much of Christ and very little of ourselves. We pray and ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, as we look at this passage, it kind of breaks down neatly into two main sections. You may have kind of picked up the shift that happened in the text. And so there's two big sections. There is, these are going to be our two main points this morning. So first, there is an encouraging report received. An encouraging report received. That's basically verses 6 through 10, where Paul is receiving this report. And then there is an encouraging prayer offered. So there's an encouraging report that's received, and then there is an encouraging prayer offered. Those are going to be our two main points. So let's look at that first point, an encouraging report received. It's kind of verses 6 through 10. And you can imagine Paul listening intently as Timothy filled him in on the situation in Thessalonica. They both knew firsthand just how hardened this major port city was to the gospel message. And they both knew very well that this church of young Christians was under constant assault and scrutiny for just claiming Christ. They knew firsthand what that was like. And look at verse 6. Paul uses a very specific root word to describe Timothy's report. Look at what he says. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith. It's a really important word. That word that he used there, the Greek word there is euangelizo. It may sound like evangelism is where we get that word from. It's the same word that is used to describe the good news of the gospel that's shared. It's the same word that he used back in chapter 2, verse 8, where he said, The gospel, the euangelion of God has come to you. And so it's where we get this word evangelize from. And, and what you're like, Dave, who cares? Okay, the reason that Paul uses this word is because that report from, the Thess- from Timothy about the Thessalonians, he had been so worried about them, it was just like the best news ever. It just hit with the same news of, oh, what a, go- what a good word. It fell on him like the good news of the gospel. In spite of all the suffering and persecution, this group of young believers had not abandoned their belief after they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, as he already mentioned, chapter 1, verse 9. And the good news here, I don't know if you actually noticed it, but the good news that he talks about is actually threefold. There's three things that he says. It was like good news in these ways. Number one, there was the good news of their faith. This gift of saving faith had come to the Thessalonians, and Paul was encouraged to hear that God had strengthened them and held them fast. As he has already said, the gospel, the good news has come to you. So the, God's grace had come to them in a very powerful way. It had been manifested in a changed life. You once were like this, but now you're like this. And everybody sees it. God's grace had come to them in a very powerful way. Good news of their faith. But also, good news of their love. This saving faith had manifested itself in this first fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Love, agape. 
this kind of self-sacrificial love of benevolence towards each other and to those around them. Remember, it's one of the ways that this kind of hardened pagan city had noticed there's something different about this group. Look at how they love each other. Look at how they love and serve everyone around them as they are not only sharing the good news of the gospel with their, the ways that they have been shaped and changed by this message, but they had also begun to love and serve in a very sacrificial way. And everybody else in Thessalonica, this major city, was going, what is up with these people? Paul heard this word that that love has continued. They're still loving each other, and they're loving around. He's like, that is the best news ever, because I'm seeing that you're being steadfast. God's grace was now being shared through them in a powerful way. God's grace had come to them in a powerful way, and now God's grace is being shown through them in a powerful way. But there was this final little bit of the good news here, good news of their remembrance of Paul, Timothy, and Silas. And the apostle was encouraged to hear that this church still loved them and missed them even after they had left them so abruptly and that they loved and missed them too. You could imagine as Paul was kind of had was torn away from them quickly. He was thinking, do they resent us? Do they hate us? Do they ever want to see us again? We had to leave so quickly. We didn't really have time for a goodbye. You know, do they when they hear our names, do they do they kind of mutter under their breath? And what he heard was, "No, Paul, they miss you." Just as much as you miss them, they miss you. And there was this bond that had been formed there. And you, you see there, what you see is this interpersonal relationship that exists between Paul and his church. And here's what Andrew Young said. He said, True Christian ministry is never impersonal and mechanically task-oriented. It takes place in the context of loving personal relationships formed through costly self-giving. You had seen Paul do this with the Thessalonians, and as we see Paul's ministry among this church, it's a good reminder for us today that we love and serve each other in the church family, not as a machine. We serve each other as a family. We love and serve one another. And so there's not this mechanistic program that we're going through. It is relationships, relationships, relationships that are often messy that are always messed up, right? Because it's two sinners talking together. But yet, that's how God works, is through relationships. And so we're called to love each other. And what's that look like? We're called to love each other in this church, even if it costs us something, even if it means we don't always get our own way. Guess what? I don't always get my way, and you don't either. And it's good for you. Welcome to the sanctification of the church, right? But yet, this is what we do. We're called to love one another. We're called to encourage each other in the Lord. We're called to build each other up and speak a word of grace. Remind each other of the good news. You'll see Paul say, comfort each other with these words. Encourage each other with these words. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm so quick to forget. And every now and then, I am just grateful when somebody comes by and says, you know what, Dave, guess what? Jesus loves you. Like, oh, thank you. I'm glad. And he loves you too. And we're called to encourage one another in this way. Look at verse 7. In the midst of all these difficulties and affliction and opposition, Paul was actually comforted and re-energized by hearing what God was doing in and through this young church. And when Paul was tempted to waver or complain and lose heart, he remembered the Thessalonians and it actually bolstered him. It actually strengthened him. When he said, I'm out here slugging it away. And I'll get tired, 
But yet, when I hear the good news of what you've been doing and what God has been doing, it strengthens my knees. It helps me get in there for another day. When you are tempted, you're like, so what? When you are tempted to waver and to lose heart, just take a look around at what God is doing in the hearts of people. Take a look around. When you're tempted to complain, look around and see what God is doing. I've said before, especially during COVID and all the weirdness, and we're the only PCA church within 40 minutes. And like, we've grown. It makes no sense. No sense. And we look at this and say, thank you, Lord. When you're tempted to complain, just look around at what God is doing and be encouraged. God's up to something. May the gathering of fellow sinners saved by grace bolster you in your fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And may we point each other to Christ. We all need the Lord. Look at verse 8. Hearing that these afflicted Christians were still standing fast in the Lord was like a new lease on life for Paul. His, His whole life was wrapped up in ministry and preaching the gospel, and he lived to see hearts changed by the gospel. He's like, you once were like this, but now you're like that. Look at what God is doing. And it bolstered his heart. It encouraged him. And he said, man, you are not the same people that you were not too long ago. He longed to see Christ magnified. He longed to see hearts changed. And look at what happens in verse 9 and 10. Paul breaks out into thanksgiving to God for all of his blessings. Paul knew that God was the origin of his own conversion. Remember, remember Paul, he used to be called Saul. And he used to go and preside over the stoning of people and kick down doors and drag Christians off. And people clapped while he did it. And then God got a hold of him, didn't he? And Jesus comes and meets him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And changes his heart. And gives him a new mission. Those people that you used to hate, that you used to think were unclean, Gentile dogs, go take the gospel to them. Go love them. New message. New method. Paul, those people that you used to hate, guess what? Those are actually your brothers and sisters. Go love them and serve them. Here's a brand new mission. Go. Can imagine Paul knew exactly what this, what this was like, and he breaks out into thanksgiving for what he has seen God doing in the Thessalonians. He knew that God was the origin of this faith that he now shared with these Gentiles. Did you mention? Remember, we talked about this a little bit ago. He calls them brothers. He used to call them enemies, and now you're my brothers and sisters in the faith. And he knew what God was up to. God was the one who gave them, was gave, gave them and himself the eyes to see and gave them a future hope in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about the fact that every other Christian you come in contact is a trophy of God's amazing grace put right in front of you? You ever thought about that? We've talked about how when you meet people, especially if you maybe travel overseas or you meet other people and you find out that they're a Christian, don't you instantly just kind of have something in common with them at the heart level? You may have never seen each other ever, but you find out that they know and trust the Lord and you instantly have something in common with them. And have you ever thought about that, that every other blood-bought, converted Christian who was once a sinner is now saved by grace? You ever thought about that they are a trophy of God's amazing grace right in front of you? You say, look at what God's done. Look at what he's done. These, it's just a good reminder. Have you ever thought about what a privilege it is to gather with the saints on the Lord's day and to be reminded of Christ's return? This is a privilege. 
where we are gathered together and we look around and we remember that we're not the only ones. Look at what the Lord is doing. I mean, we think about this, these reminders of God's grace. I mean, look no further than the table put before you, ladies and gentlemen. This table is a reminder of God's grace. It is a reminder that this meal has been shared by Christians for centuries as we look and we wait for Christ's return. Trophies of God's grace. When I hear about what God is doing in your heart, it makes my heart happy. Man, look at what God is doing. Trophies of God's grace. It's amazing when you think about it. And so when we all come together like this, we are all come in busted up from the fight against sin. We get to see each other face to face, encourage each other, and be strengthened by the simple means of grace. Word, sacrament, prayer, being together. We're just strengthened each and every week. And I hope as you, as you move forward and you grow in the Christian life, don't you find yourself just kind of longing to be with God's people on the Lord's Day? Like you just kind of, it just doesn't feel right if you don't go to church with your church family on Sunday morning, does it? You just kind of, you find your heart kind of wanting to be there. When we think about all these promises and blessings, you see this rhetorical question that Paul asks. Basically, basically verses 9 and 10 are just one big question. It's a rhetorical question. And Paul asks, basically, when we think about all these promises and blessings, how could we possibly begin to thank God in return? And the point is very simple. We can't. There's no way we could begin to say thank you. And that is a wonderfully humbling thing. I mean, think about this. God, according to the counsel of his own will, by sheer grace alone, did everything necessary to rescue and save a bunch of spiritually dead, busted up people like you and me by sending his only son to get busted up and to die in our place. Talk about good news. Think about that. According to the counsel of his own will, by sheer grace, he did everything necessary. God sent his son to save a bunch of busted up, spiritually dead people. And Jesus himself comes and he got busted up. He died in our place so that we could walk in newness of life. If you are here and you do not trust Christ by faith, please know how glad that we are that you're here. Also know that you are not surrounded by a bunch of perfect people who have their lives all put together. You're actually surrounded by a bunch of people who are living testimonies of God's grace, busted up, busted up people by sin. But yet, the good news of the gospel declared blameless because of Christ's work on their behalf. This is not the gathering of the perfect people who look down their noses in judgment. This is a gathering of sinners saved by grace who look to Christ and glory in all that Christ has done on their behalf and say, thank you, Jesus, with a head bowed low and with a prayer of thankfulness in our hearts. Lord, you're so good. Now, we could stop right here and say amen, but we've got a little bit, of, little bit of news left to do, so let's do it. We've got even more good news to talk about. See this encouraging prayer that's offered in verses 11 through 13. This one's much shorter. Look at verse 11. Paul offers a written prayer to God asking for a way to be opened up for him and his ministry companions to be reunited with these people who he loves. And notice Paul's robust Christology here as he links the Father with the Son. And he reminds them of their spiritual adoption into a new family and being linked to a kingdom that far outpaces that of any Roman emperor or local governor. He's like, you think Caesar's awesome? He ain't seen nothing yet. There is a king who sits on his throne and there is a kingdom that is greater and bigger and more glorious than anything you can imagine. And guess what? Because of Christ, you're invited. You're now part of that family. You are an heir. 
In verse 12, Paul prays for God to bless them and to help them grow in their love for each other and for those around him, even for those who hate, who hate them. Why? Look at verse 13. This is where the rubber hits the road. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Why is he asking them to do this? Why is he praying this prayer of thanksgiving? He's praying that they would look more like Christ as they're sanctified by the Spirit. So that they will be reminded of their adoption and justification when they grow weary. He wants their hearts to be established. What that Greek word there is strengthened. That your hearts may be strengthened. He wants them to be found faithful if and when the Lord returns and to be declared blameless in His sight. Again, Andrew Young said, He wants them to be without blame, morally pure, and devoted to the Lord Himself. He knows that their only hope of being able to do this rests in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Only as He establishes and strengthens their hearts will they be ready to meet God. And it's a good reminder for us today, too, when we think about this. It's only through the grace of Christ that any of us will be able to stand up on Judgment Day before that holy, holy, holy God. It's only through Christ. We will not point to our own busted up moral record or our own personal righteousness. It is not sufficient to stand before a holy God. We cannot stand before a holy God on our own merits. And if you're trying to do it, i got bad news for you. It's never going to work out. You need something else. We need something else. And this is what Paul talked about, what we truly need in Philippians 3. Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The bad news of the gospel tells us this. We need a righteousness from outside of ourselves because ours is not sufficient. Ours isn't enough. Christ's righteousness, though, the good news is Christ's righteousness credited to our account by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. God has made a way for a bunch of busted up, broken people like us to be declared blameless in His sight. And it's not by anything we bring. It is through Christ who was busted up in our place. And we look to Him. Colossians 1, 19-22 Speaking of Christ, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in the body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless before Him and above reproach. And so the bad news that we have to deal with this morning is that none of us on our own merit are worthy to come to this table. And without Christ, that is the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad news that we all have to deal with. That none of us on our own merit is able to come to this table. None of us is able to come and say, look, I'm perfect enough to come into your presence and to take this. That's not how this works. That's not how this works at all. 
This is the table of grace set before you. The good news of the gospel is that by faith alone and Christ alone, you are welcome to this table because you've been declared blameless through the atoning work of another on your, ha- on your behalf. And so as we've sung before, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded by the fall. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised, broken, busted up by the fall. It also goes on that hymn tells us, if you, if you tarry, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, Jesus came to call. And so this table of grace is set before you, this reminder of God's faithfulness. And there's an old Latin phrase that's been used to describe how Christians see themselves on this side of heaven. And that phrase is this, simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. It means simultaneously justified and sinner. Declared not guilty before a holy God while still wrestling with the effects of sin. And another way to put that, we think about this. Another way to put that is busted up from the fall, yet because of Christ, blameless, not guilty in his sight, simultaneously justified, declared righteous, and sinful, still dealing with the effects of sin at the same time. That's you and me. And the good news of the gospel is even in the midst of that, God's made a way. But we're so quick to forget, are we not? That's what this is for. And as we are gathered this morning, as we look to the table, there's, we, we look to Christ in all things as we come to the supper and we trust in His mercy and we trust in His love. We need to be reminded of Christ's return. We need to be reminded of His mercy. And so Christ has given us this physical reminder. This is a good gift. 